is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And our next story is about a comedian whose jokes came so fast that when you laughed at one, you were probably going to miss the next one. On this day in history, in 2004, Rodney Dangerfield passed away. All of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Now to the story. Here's Greg Hengler. Anybody can repeat a Rodney Dangerfield joke, but nobody could tell one like the man himself. That's because his humor was drawn from a life so hard that the only way to survive it was to laugh at it. And we all do. In fact, Rodney is one of the very few comedians whose act connects and appeals to every generation. This is his story. You know, people say to me, how did you get a name like Rodney Dangerfield? I'll tell you what happened. Hi. I saw your ad in the paper. I want to improve my personality. Good luck. What's your name? I'm Jack Roy. Jack Roy, you got two first names. Your name is your biggest problem. This is like a comeback for me in show business. I was in show business years ago and I quit. And even an idea how well I was doing at the time I quit. I was the only one who knew I quit. <laughs> What's the name? Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> Rodney Dangerfield? With a name like Rodney Dangerfield, you have to either be really funny or you have to be an idiot. And you were really funny as Rodney Dangerfield. If you look at his image and his material and the way he dressed, the way he conducted himself, the name Rodney Dangerfield just fit. Suppose I use the name, I don't like it. Can I bring it back? Okay, just give me one favor. While you're using the name, don't give it a bad name. This persona is what made this man special. What a crowd, what a crowd. Rodney was totally unique. He was a different kind of performer. There was never one like that before. And there's never been one like that since. He was funny. And he was every man. And Rodney Dangerfield, if he was anything else, was authentic. Rodney's jokes were all true. They were all based on his, his real perception of himself. I tell you, it's not easy being me. And this whole thing, it's not easy being me. It wasn't. He, he always felt someone was trying to take advantage of him. I tell you, can't get help today. More going to betray him or, you know, that he'd been somehow wronged. But, and that just was something from his childhood. He's so wronged by his parents that he can never overcome it. Tonight, Rodney Dangerfield, comedian, actor, the man who from coast to coast gets no respect this is your life! Rodney Dangerfield was born Jacob Cohen on November 22, 1921 in Long Island, New York. He was the son of Jewish parents, vaudeville performer Phil and housewife Dorothy. Here's comedian Argus Hamilton, Rodney's second wife, Joan Dangerfield, and literary agent Chris Calhoun. Well, I told my old man, never took me to the zoo. He said, if they want you, they'll come and get you. He was born a really poor, rejected kid. His father, uh, who adopted the stage name Roy, was on a comedy team in vaudeville and always on the road. Rodney's dad was absent from his life, which was um, a real source of, of heartache for Rodney. His father saw him twice a year for about two 30-minute visits. What a childhood I had. My mother never breastfed me. She told me she liked me as a friend. <laughs> His mother, a beautiful Hungarian Jew, couldn't stand him. 
didn't even tend him, hardly even babysat him. He told me she never gave him a hug or a kiss or, or even a compliment. Last week I looked up my family tree, I found out I'm the sap. He was really left to just go play in the backyard and um, there'd be half a sandwich on the, on the porch and he had to fend for himself. Even though his mother didn't show him much affection, it didn't stop him from being a, a loyal, devoted son. He worked at a newsstand before school, when he was in grade school, and he took every job he could get his hands on and, and was actually the breadwinner of the family. He was starved for affection, attention. He tried to do good things. He worked very hard to get good grades, and he presented his mother with a report card. She wouldn't even look at it. She just says, give me that sign, and she says, you know what you got to do. And I, well, who are you trying to get good marks for if your mother don't want to look at it? When Rodney was 12, his mother, Dorothy, moved them to Kew Gardens in Queens. Here's Chris Calhoun. His aunt, Pearlie, and uh, Rodney's older sister were going to the movies, and he begged them to go. Aunt Pearlie said, well, if you scrub up, you can go. So he ran up the stairs and washed his face and hands. And he came back down, and they were halfway down the block laughing and running away from him. And he screamed out, please, I want to go, please, I want to go, and they never came back. He actually got his first laugh at five years old. He was still hungry after dinner and told his mother that he'd like some more food. And she said, well, you've had sufficient. And he said, I didn't even have any fish. Sadly, everybody laughed, but he noticed that that mood lifted, and he never forgot that, and kind of spent the rest of his life trying to get that good feeling back. He was very unhappy, so you tried to think of comedy relief, so you tried to think of some way to write a funny joke or get a funny thought, and just to break up the, uh, how unhappy you are, I guess. He told me many times that when he would get laughter from the audience, that was the closest warm feeling he could compare to love. At the age of 15, Rodney Dangerfield began writing jokes. When he turned 18, he took his father's stage name, Phil Roy, and started his comedic career under the stage name Jack Roy in hopes of becoming a professional comedian like his idols, W.C. Fields, Groucho Marx, and Laurel and Hardy. It all started when he was working as a young man in a club in Brooklyn called the Polish Falcon. And when the comic got off stage uh, one evening, he got up and did a few jokes. Boy, what a racket. You don't know what you go through in show business. You're kids in show business. At the time, I was a kid and doing what the kids do. I lacked maturity. I lacked an image. Here's comedian Harry Basil. When Rodney started in show business uh, as Jack Roy, he didn't know what he was doing yet. He sang on stage, he even used props for a while. He didn't know what type of a comedian he wanted to be. As Jack Roy, he was really doing impressions. Humphrey Bogart and, and Cary Grant and Jimmy Durante. And they weren't that good, really. And what a story. It makes so much sense now that we're listening to it, all of us, right? And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, the life story of Rodney Dangerfield, here on Our American Stories. Something Noah was 
made for fun and frolic And so do I, and so do I Some think it's right to be so melancholic To find a side, to find a side This is Our American Stories And you're listening to Rodney Dangerfield Singing in the movie Easy Money Let's return to where we left off it's the early 1940s, and Rodney, known at the time as Jack Roy, is struggling as a young New York comedian. Here's the former producer for The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, Stan Irwin, former William Morris agent Ed Summerfield, and comedians Tommy Smothers and Rob Schneider. Jack Roy was also known as Mad Jack. Mad Jack comes from his attitude. He was angry on the street all the time. I said, what are you so mad about? Ah, you don't know what I go through, Eddie. Every day it's something else. This agent and this girl and this club owner, can't they see I'm funny? He said, I'll tell you, I appealed to everyone who could do me absolutely no good. He was an angry man, but a, a sweet, angry man. Well, I never saw him happy. He was always complaining. He was always complaining about this or about that. And it sounded like a routine, but it, it wasn't a routine. Rodney suffered depression his whole life. He wasn't kidding. He really, he was uh, a depressed guy. He was down. I mean, this afternoon I was in a bar. They told me to get out. They wanted to start the happy hour. In 1949, Rodney is 28. Having been on the comedy circuit for over 10 years and with nothing to show for his efforts. But things started to look up for Rodney when he met a beautiful jazz singer named Joyce Indig. The two decided to get married quit show business, and settle down. Rodney went out and uh, became an aluminum siding salesman in the 1950s. And a lot of comedians made day money selling aluminum siding across the river in New Jersey. And Dangerfield was an excellent aluminum siding salesman. He believed that um, making the customer like you was an important part of getting the sale. And so he, he kind of, you know, used his humor to help him get his foot in the door. I live in a town called Bergenfield, New Jersey. And my best friend, Mark Levine, his parents' claim to fame was that Rodney Dangerfield did the aluminum siding on their house. And he told Murray and Gloria Levine, I'm going to be a stand-up. And he told them a joke about an egg. Well, sex with me, that's ridiculous. My wife makes love to me. There's always a reason for it. One night she used me to time an egg. So he tells them that joke and gets in his car and drives away. And Mrs. Levine goes, Murray, he'll never make it. When he was out of show business working this square gig as a aluminum siding salesman and living in the suburbs and going on the road and taking orders, lining up contractors, he continued to write jokes. And he kept a duffel bag in his bedroom at home. And he would just write funny jokes, funny jokes, funny jokes. For 11 years, he filled up this duffel bag with funny jokes. Well, the other night, I felt like having a few drinks. Someone over the bartender was just surprised me. He showed me a naked picture of my wife. Joyce kept her promise. She quit the business. Rodney, Jack Roy, still had the bug in him to perform. Rodney and Joyce would have two children, Brian and Melanie. But Rodney's inability to leave show business was breaking up his marriage. I got divorced, and uh, I life sort of caved in on me, and I saw I go back in show business. You can't find perfection in relationships, but I can find it in my work. He had filled, as he said, a bag of jokes that he had been writing. So he had uh, a wealth of material. So even though he had not been on the stage, he had been working, working on his act and working on his jokes. 
1962, at a failed stint in comedy, a failed marriage, and no money in the bank, Rodney returned to the comic circuit at the age of 40. But these struggles, along with his maturity, made Rodney a better comedian. His stage name, on the other hand, Jack Roy, was lacking. He went to a club that he had worked in the past, and, um, and the club owner always ran the names of the acts in the Friday paper, The Mirror. And Rodney wasn't sure he'd do very well. So instead of using the name Jack Roy, he told the club owner, George McFanna, to just make up a name. So he made up a name. Rodney Dangerfield. Rodney Dangerfield? See, you just heard it. You're starting to say it. Listen to me. Take the name. He was surprised that the name was Rodney Dangerfield. Um, but it went so well that night, uh, he killed. And he thought maybe, maybe that's the name for him. So it stuck and kind of became his lucky charm. The name change helped. But the angry guy routine also needed a makeover. First thing he came up with is, with me, nothing goes right. I tell you, with me, you know, nothing works out. And then he would write jokes accordingly to that. Every time I leave my house, my wife tells me to call her in case something goes right. Rodney's new routine was working, earning him bookings in more prestigious venues. But at the age of 44, Rodney knew he needed more exposure. There was no better venue at the time than the Ed Sullivan Show. But unknowns had to audition, so Rodney auditioned in 1966, and he killed it. But Sullivan proved to be harder to win over. Sullivan never called after that. I said, see, what do you have to do, man? I tell you, I don't get a break with nothing. Rodney Dangerfield. After three long weeks, Rodney got the call to appear on The Ed Sullivan Show on March 5th, 1967. I'll tell you, my apartment, nothing works. I got a radio, I can hardly hear it. I got a television set, I can't make out the picture. But when my wife opens her mouth, perfect reception. <laughs> With my wife, we got nothing but arguments. And I can never get a word in. The other night I told her, I said, there's another side to that argument. She said, I know, my mother's coming right over. Here's owner of Rodney's comedy club, Dangerfields, Anthony Bavacquia. The Ed Sullivan Show, uh, if you did well, if the ovation was uh, good, uh, better than normal, Ed Sullivan would call you back to take a bow. And that's it! So, his ovation was good. Uh, so, as the uh, ovation is starting to dip a little bit, uh, Ed Sullivan would be getting ready to bring on the next act. Rodney would, uh, from behind the curtain, would peek his head out. The uh, applause... It went sky high, and it's all been uh, encore. Take a take a bow, Rodney. So Rodney would come out and take another bow, and then he would run back behind his, uh, the curtain. Ed Sullivan never do that. Rodney earned a thousand dollars for his first appearance on Sullivan. When it went well, he was booked more times at fifteen hundred dollars a pop. Here's Joan and comedians Harry Basil and Dennis Blair. For Rodney, it was a very, very slow climb. In fact, even when he was doing Sullivan, he was still selling aluminum siding. A customer said to his secretary, uh, is Mr. Roy in show business? We saw him on the, the Ed Sullivan show the other night. Oh, no, no, he does that on the side. <laughs> on the side. He shows up at this guy's house to do aluminum siding. At about 6 o'clock, he's doing the side, and he says to the guy, hey, uh, you mind if I come in and watch the TV for a little while? The guy goes... 
okay? He turns on the TV, and Rodney's on TV, and he's watching himself, and the guy at the house is standing there and looking at him and looking at the TV going, what kind of alternate universe am I in? The guy who's doing my sighting is on Sullivan. Rodney also established his signature look and manic style of delivery. Here's Rodney, Stan Irwin, Pat Cooper, and producer George Slaughter. First time I did the Ed Sullivan show, I got dressed and I wore a black suit and a red tie and a white shirt. Then I did well and he brought me back to do another show. What am I going to wear the second time? I thought to myself, I don't know what to wear. I can't figure it out. I'll wear the same thing. So I got known for, for a red tie and a white shirt and a black suit quite by accident. His mannerisms were individual. I mean, the reaching for the tie. No one else did it because if you did do it, you thought of Dangerfield. He was a fidgety guy. And the sweat was real. The ticks were real. He was constantly pulling, constantly nervous. So that was just part of him that worked for the character. When you talk like Rodney Dangerfield... I'll tell you, I'm all right now, but last week I was in rough shape, you know? Some people, they think you're having a nervous breakdown. But when Rodney, that's his persona. He walked out, and it looked like, uh, hey, you just came in here, I want to tell you something. And it looked like an accident. Rodney looked like an accident to begin with, right? A poor car accident with no survivors. But it was no accident. He prepared those jokes, the routine of those jokes, the construction of the jokes. Are uh, you kidding? Are you kidding? I know I'm ugly. I asked a bartender to make me a zombie. Told me God beat him to it. The classic Rodney Dangerfield joke is, oh, I was ugly. Well, you set it up. I came out. That's the middle. The doctor slapped my mother. You know, it, and it, it reverses right at the end, and it has the meaning, and he loved that type of joke. I'll tell you, my wife, she never went for me. Well, the first time I called her up, she told me, come on over, there's nobody home. I went over, there was nobody home. And when we come back, more from Rodney Dangerfield and his story on this day in history in 2004, Rodney Dangerfield passed away. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are good in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you and your family with their terrific and free online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And you're listening to Rodney Dangerfield singing in the movie Back to School, and I can't help but laugh. Just one of my top three favorite comedies. And it's because of Rodney. No one else could have done it like him. Let's return to Greg Hengler and the story of Rodney Dangerfield. Armed with a new name, Look and Delivery, Rodney was gaining fans all across America. But his rocket didn't actually launch until he stumbled upon the greatest hook in the history of comedy. Here's comedians Dom Herrera, Robert Townsend, Phyllis Diller, Fred Willard, George Lopez, Brad Garrett, Louis Anderson, and Dennis Blair. It was just perfect. It was the most brilliant hook ever. He tapped into a brand that spoke to everybody in America. He had those wonderful bulging eyes. 
and the tick and the great delivery and of all things that wonderful line. No respect. I don't got no respect at all. You audience just cheered it's like tony bennett's starting out with i left my heart in san francisco and now oh, here it comes this is what we're waiting for it's the same thing when i was a kid no respect the time my old man took me to the zoo they thanked him for returning me from a kid who doesn't get to stay out and play longer or the housewife and mother who works all day at some point during the day they go i don't get no respect Jack Benny just thought that uh, Rodney had probably the best image there ever was for comedy. Jack Benny came down to Rodney's dressing room once and said, you know, my image is an image of a cheap guy. It's okay. And he said to Rodney, but your image gets into the soul of everybody. Everybody thinks they're not being respected. He knew he was starting to get a, a good reaction from the audiences, and he had booked this gig uh, in Long Island with 400 people, and he, he brought his dad to that show. His dad said, you know... I think you've got something. And Rodney never forgot that. And he was so glad that that, that approval came before uh, his father passed. Rodney's hard work was paying off. But there was only one gig guaranteed to land his rocket on the moon. The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Here's comedian Richard Lewis. That five and a half minutes, more people will see you on that monologue than if you played, say, this nightclub here three times a day, you know, for like 50 years. So you better treat that six minutes like it's like gold. Johnny Carson got 20 to 25 million viewers a night. The whole country watched the Johnny Carson show. And most importantly, the whole industry watched the Tonight Show. If you didn't get on the Tonight Show, <laughs> you weren't happening. You also could end your career there, too. And if he uh, said, sit down, that was the ultimate. But to have a chance at a sit down, you first had to book the show. But that was impossible for Rodney because of a mistake he made years earlier. Now, I tell you, I'm all right now, but last week I was a rough shape, you know? He had been at the improv, and he wrote a very funny joke, and it got a pretty good laugh at the club. And yet... A few days later, it was coming out of Johnny Carson's mouth. He was so upset that he wrote a letter to Johnny Carson. Johnny Carson was very upset with the letter. Didn't really know Rodney, and he said, who is this guy that's saying that I have a thief on the staff? And Johnny did not want to use uh, Rodney for the longest time. A few years later, a couple of the talent bookers uh, came up to him after a performance and said, okay, you got, you got to do Johnny's show. And Rodney said, I'd, I'd like to, but, you know, he doesn't want me. And they said, oh, he's forgotten about that. He's forgotten about that by now. And so they booked a date, and Rodney was like, oh, so happy, and telling everyone, calling everybody. And then his phone rang, and, well, guess what? Johnny's not over it. One night, Rodney was at the Copacabana, where Tony Bennett was on in 1969. And Johnny Carson pulled up in a limo with Stan Irwin, his producer, and saw the crowd just trying to get in and decided to give up. Rodney personally set him up with a table for two. And Rodney looked at, at Johnny and said, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Johnny said, forget about it. And the next thing he knew, would you welcome Mr. Rodney Danger? And Rodney became a national institution just from, just from how much Johnny liked. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you, last week was a rough week for me last week. 
I saw my kid in a milkman going to a father and son dinner. It was great. Did he come in? Six minutes of all home runs. Rodney was not interested in entertaining an audience. He wanted to pulverize him. He wanted to kill him. Ladies and gentlemen, Rodney Dangerfield. He wanted to leave him on the floor left. I tell you, I tell you, I'm all right now, but last week I was in rough shape, you know? Well, last week I saw my doctor. I told him, doctor, every day I wake up, I look in the mirror, I want to throw up. What's wrong with me? He said, I don't know, but your eyesight is perfect. Well, you should tell me, when you go on the caution show, you got to do damage. You got to do damage. <laughs> there was a stand-up and there was the panel part. Which can I deliver to Johnny? And which do I want to play to the audience with? This was all part of the craft. He just killed Johnny. I mean, Johnny would literally cry. And and he was one of the few that could do that in the industry. I'll tell you, all you hear is sex with sex. I had it up to here. Yeah. Not lately, though. You know? <laughs> I don't think I ever saw Johnny Carson laugh as long or as loud <laughs> as when Rodney was next to him. Here's Jeff Ross. Well, those are the best clips, you know, when you see Johnny Carson laughing, and he was such a great setup man with uh, Rodney, so they had a fun chemistry. It used to take me three months to prepare a talk show between the stand-up and the panel. I needed 32 new jokes that were all funny, this and that, and, and that's how long it would take me to prepare six or eight minutes. When he um, would write a joke, he would literally write a joke. And he would start maybe with a, with a thought and write that down. And then he'd keep kind of adding to it and reworking it and reworking it. Well, last week I went to the track. I showed off the opening gun. They killed my horse. Every show that he did on television, his handwritten Mike Douglas, Merv Griffin, Steve Allen show, every show that he did. By 1969, at the age of 48, Rodney's success on Carson made him a national phenomenon. He could now command tens of thousands of dollars in Vegas but he was about to be confronted with an event that would force him to choose between his family and his career. His ex-wife Joyce was suffering with debilitating arthritis and she began drinking heavily to deal with her condition. Here's comedians Harry Basil and Paul Rodriguez. And here he was famous, he was Rodney Dangerfield. And there was a big demand for him to go on the road. The job of a stand-up comic is crowded, so crowded. And just to get a little bit of attention is so difficult. And when you have a little of attention, you want more. You don't just walk away because you got to raise some kids. Who does that? Rodney did. But he decided to open up his own club and put his name on it. Kind of like Ricky Ricardo with the club Babalu, you know, just going to work every day and being there for the kids and just going and working at nighttime. Rodney opened Dangerfields on New York's Lower East Side. The comedy club was a success, but it still failed to get him any respect. He said to me, he says, you know, I'm here I am, I got my own club, I'm trying to do well, and, and this woman came up for me, Eddie, and she said, Rodney, could I have your autograph and some more butter? Joyce's condition continued to deteriorate, and she passed away, leaving Rodney the single father of 7-year-old Melanie and 11-year-old Brian. He had his priorities right. Raise his children once they were adults, once they had a, their, own, uh, their own lives, once his responsibility was over, he went back and became even bigger than he was. The first step after Rodney's return to the world of comedy was a chance meeting with a young director and writer named Harold Ramis, who was about to shoot a low-budget movie called Caddyshack. Here's the director of Caddyshack, Harold Ramis. Our first thought was uh, that 
Maybe Don Rickles should play the part. But at the time, Rodney was had an amazing run on The Tonight Show. He was killing every time, just hysterically funny. And uh, I forgot who first said it, but we said, you know, maybe Rodney's the guy. We didn't know that if he could act, but we thought even if he couldn't act, just being himself would uh, would work for us. And we know how that worked out. And when we come back, the final installment, the final segment of this terrific story, Rodney Dangerfield story, here on Our American Story. Our American stories, and let's return where we left off with Rodney getting cast in the low budget movie Caddyshack. Here's director Harold Ramis. So, we worked on his first day's shooting, and I said, All right, action. Rodney, action? He says, You want me to do the bit? I said, Yeah, do the bit. Okay, so he, he didn't, he was so raw, he didn't even understand that action was the, the signal to, to start. But, uh, the the punchline to that is by the end of the shoot, he finished the scene and he came over to me and he said, I guess I'm an actor. The first scene he ever shot, he starts to sweat. I said, oh my God, this guy's going to have a heart attack. I go, you know, so in between takes, I go, Ronnie, are you okay? No, no. I said, what's, what's the matter? I suck. I'm suck. I'm, I'm dying out there. I said, what do you mean? Nobody's laughing. Nobody's laughing. I said, Rodney, they can't laugh. Right, because I suck. I said, Rodney, they can't laugh because they won't be able to use the soundtrack. So let's dance. Caddyshack was released in 1980 and was a smash hit. But its true success is found in the avid cult following it's developed over the years. Here's Everybody Loves Raymond co-star Brad Garrett. The man's a menace. Most comedians, that's probably one of their top 10 movies of all time. And it's, it's what we call a road movie. It's something when we get on the bus or get on a plane, we take literally with us and we watch, and it stands up still today. In 1983, at the age of 61, Rodney was asked to play the role of a hard-living derelict and degenerate named Monty Capuletti. Here's the writer for Easy Money, Dennis Blair. This was like the height of his popularity, and he goes, so they want to do a movie starring me. So if you come up with an idea, let me know. So by the next night, I had this idea of just, you know, a guy has to stop drinking, smoking, and gambling for a year to, to get $10 million. He thought, that's a good idea. I'm very familiar with him, and there's a part of me that's part of him, too, you know? Uh, the idea that uh, a good time is going to the trek and having a few drinks and gambling. That's part of me, too, my personal life. It's hard to contain myself. That's where we got the idea for the movie. Comedy comes from tragedy, and that could not be more true about anyone 
uh, more than Rodney Dangerfield. He really was a tortured soul who turned it into uh, a lot of jokes and making everyone else laugh. Uh, but he didn't laugh a lot himself. Rodney's next movie was his greatest success and earned him a new generation of fans. Back to School dropped in 1986 engrossed more than $100 million at the box office and became another cult hit with the college kids, a group that would become one of Rodney's most enthusiastic fans. At 65, Rodney had finally climbed to the top of the comedy world. Mindful of his struggles, Rodney used his status and his HBO comedy show to help jumpstart the careers of talented and up-and-coming comedians. I know how tough it is for a comedian when he starts. If I see a guy who I think is funny, it's my pleasure to try to move him along. Here, let the people see him. He appreciated talent. In this thing called showbiz, he's one of the guys who's coming up real fast. He's and I like that about Rodney Dangerfield. He admired other comics because he loved the art of, of comedy. Robert Townsend is really dying about okay. Rodney had a lot of empathy for comedians, so he knew how difficult it was. Give it up for Robert Schimmel, okay? He genuinely had a daddy motivation where he kind of felt um, the, the need to nurture. I'm going to hire both of you. Rodney was offered by HBO a series of stand-up comedy specials where he would bring in stand-up comics and feature them on his HBO specials. He was the doorkeeper. He was able to open doors for guys that he really liked. All right, give it up now for Tim Allen. Okay, here we go. All right, Tim, here we go. Most of the people that were on those shows became superstars. All right. It was a big break for them in show business to be on a show with Rodney Dangerfield. Rodney was responsible for a whole bunch of superstars. Seinfeld, Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey was his opening act, which he was very proud of. Andrew Dice Clay, Roseanne Barr. Just all of these people became superstars. Dice was on for seven minutes, and he became an arena act, which meant he was selling out 15,000 seaters based on seven minutes on Rodney's HBO special, which was a phenomena. You're going to get a kick out of Bad Sam, okay, Sammy West. Sam Kinison was uh, rebellious. Uh, Sam was having a tough time in the business because he was different. It just shows how generous he was. Most comics are very threatened by other funny people. He would help us out. Sometimes we would sell him jokes that he'd never use because he knew we needed the money and, and he allowed us to keep our dignity, you know. Some really uh, bad material I sold him over the years. <laughs> Just having Rodney know you and think you're funny was like, a, you know, you carry it with you like a badge of honor. As a young guy back then, I was like, that was huge for me and for my confidence. After a 10-year courtship, Rodney, the 72-year-old Jew, married the 40-year-old Mormon Joan Child in 1993. His act was selling out all over the country Everyone wanted to see Rodney. What do you say we bust up this joint? Bust a wide open, are you kidding? My wife and I are at one of Rodney's shows and Jim Carrey opened for him. And, and you know, it's like a comic opening for a rock star. Get the f*** off the stage. Bring out Rodney. We don't f*** you. Get out. And poor Jim Carrey left the stage in tears. I thought he was going to lease the business. As the 1990s came to a close, Rodney was approaching his 80s and his years of hard living were beginning to catch up with him. On August 24, 2004, Rodney had heart valve replacement surgery. 
When asked how long he'd be hospitalized, he said, If all goes well, about a week. If not, about an hour and a half. After Rodney's um, final heart surgery, he slipped into a coma and was in the coma for 40 days. They pretty much uh, let me try everything to try to bring him out. And, um, and part of that included that they gave me permission to bring in um, beyond family, other people that had strong emotional connections to him. And I, uh, I got on the phone and called a few comics. And they all knew the mission. Try to say something that maybe Rodney would react to. I heard some of the best material in the world from Jay Leno, Jim Carrey, Adam Sandler. Louis Anderson came almost every day. Bob Saget, Andrew Dice Clay, Roseanne. And we just thought there was there was hope. Here's Jay Leno on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you a great Rodney story. I was pretty close to Rodney. And when Rodney was in the hospital, he was in a coma. And his wife, Joan, God bless her, she was by his side the whole time. And I go to visit Rodney, and we're standing there, and she goes, well, Jay, take Rodney's hand. So I take Rodney's hand. And she says, Rodney, if you know Jay's here, squeeze his finger. Okay, so I feel my finger get squeezed. And then I leaned, I said to Rodney, Rodney, that's not my finger. And Rodney... <laughs> And I could see Rodney kind of, you know, he just, you know, and I felt, I, I felt good. Oh, I made, Jay, I made right, one yeah. of my favorite guys laugh. <laughs> On October 5th, 2004, at 1.20 p.m., Rodney Dangerfield passed away at 82. A funeral was held for him a few days later. What a crowd, what a crowd. <laughs> the other day I told my kid, I said, someday you'll have children of your own. He said, so will you. <laughs> Well, last week my house was on fire. My wife told the kids, be quiet, you'll wake up daddy. Rodney is the only comic I can think of where guys get together and they'd all start quoting jokes of his. You know, my family, during the Civil War, they fought for the West. My wife, she's a lousy cook. Uh, at my house, we pray after we eat. <laughs> I, I, I miss Rodney. God, it's tough not to. I don't think he really believed he was that good. But the audience said, yes, you're wonderful. And he was. And uh, that's it. And, you know, he always said, hey, you got no respect. You got no respect. In, in reality, he, all he did was get respect. I just wish that everyone had the chance that I had to spend so much time with him and to um, see his humanity and his generous spirit. I was the luckiest girl in the world. Like everyone else in this thing called showbiz, I like applause, but I'll tell you, there's something to me that's more important than applause. Maybe nothing to you, but a lot to me. It's just when I walk off, if, if you're all just... Give me one of these. One of these is Rodney holding up the OK sign. I'm Greg Hengler, 
And this is Our American Stories. And great work as always, Greg. And his bride said it best, his humanity, his generosity. We were all lucky to know Rodney, that he shared his pain so honestly with us, made us all laugh about our own pain. He did what Arthur Miller said, all art should do, and that's make us all feel less alone. And Rodney did that. Rodney Dangerfield's story, here on Our American Stories. Sister Rosetta Tharp was an American singer, songwriter, guitarist, and a pioneer of mid-20th century music. She attained popularity in the 1930s and 40s with her gospel recordings, characterized by a unique mixture of spiritual lyrics and rhythmic accompaniment that was a precursor of rock and roll. She was the first great recording star of gospel music and among the first gospel musicians to appeal to rhythm and blues and rock and roll audiences, later being referred to as the original soul sister and the godmother of rock and roll. No, 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 She influenced rock and roll musicians including Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Elvis Presley, and Jerry Lee Lewis. When Johnny Cash gave his induction speech at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he referred to Sister Rosetta Tharp as his favorite singer when he would listen to her on the radio as a child. WHBQ, and they had a program on there called Red Hot and Blue late at night where they played back then what they called race music. And there I heard some of my, my earliest heroes. And it was at the home of the Blues record shop where I bought my first recording of Sister Rosetta Tharp singing those great gospel songs. Willing to cross the line between sacred and secular by performing her music of light in the darkness of nightclubs and concert halls with big bands behind her, Sister Rosetta Tharp pushed spiritual music into the mainstream and helped pioneer the rise of pop gospel. I'm so glad somehow I've got salvation now. Lottie Henry, a member of Tharp's backup vocal group, the Rosettes, remembers Sister Rosetta Tharp's talent. She could play a guitar like nobody else. Nobody. Joe Boyd, American record producer and writer who played a crucial role in the recording careers of Pink Floyd, R.E.M., and 10,000 Maniacs. I think Rosetta was a hugely important figure. Let's you know, She was really unique as a guitar player. 
She had a big influence on somebody like Chuck Berry, who was one of the most influential guitar players in the world. And here's Gordon Stoker from Elvis Presley's backing band, The Jordanaires. She did incredible picking. That's what really attracted Elvis was uh, her picking. And he liked her singing too, but he liked that picking first <laughs> uh, because it was so different. And here's Gail Wald, Sister Rosetta Tharp's biographer. She had a major impact on artists like Elvis Presley. When you see Elvis Presley singing um, early songs in his career, I think if you imagine that he is channeling Rosetta Tharp, it's not an image that I think we're used to thinking about when we think about rock and roll history. We don't think about the black woman behind the young white man. Sister Rosetta Tharp was born on March 20, 1950, in Cotton Plant, Arkansas, not far from the Mississippi River. Her parents, Katie Bell and Willis Atkins, were both cotton pickers. Here's biographer Gail Wald and Ira Tucker, friend of Sister Tharp and lead singer with the American gospel group The Dixie Hummingbirds, talking about the influence that Rosetta Tharp's parents had on her as a child. We don't know too much about Rosetta's father. What we do know about the father is that Willis Atkins could sing, and so it's possible that some of her gift of singing came from her father. Her mother um, was an evangelist for the Church of God in Christ. Her mother was incredibly passionate about the church. Rosetta's mother, Miss Katie Bell, is what we called her. She was a very traditional person, and basically she was what, what we called a stomp-down Christian. I mean, that's one that enjoyed stamping her feet and patting her hands and celebrating what she believes in. And the reason that I think that Rosetta really became such a strong woman was because of her mother. Because her mother, again, was the same type of person. She had no fear. She would take her guitar, she would take her tambourine, she would take her chair, and she would sit outside and play for people and try to convert them and to get them to go to church. In 1921, Katie Bell left Rosetta's father to become a traveling evangelist for the Church of God in Christ. Taking six-year-old Rosetta, she left Cotton Plant, Arkansas, and joined the exodus of poor black Southerners heading north. There was work in Chicago, and even something more crucial for the young Rosetta. Migrants brought the blues from the Mississippi Delta and jazz from New Orleans. Here's Anthony Halebutt, Grammy Award-winning record producer, and Gail Wald, Sister Rosetta Tharp's biographer, on this important time in Rosetta's life. Rosetta is often seen as a country singer, but that's a fallacy. Her major development occurred very early. She moved to Chicago when she was six. She and Mother Bell joined Robert's Temple Church of God in Christ, and the Chicago Sanctified Church was bubbling with musicians and new songs, and so she was exposed to something that was new. It was not rural, it was an urban kind of religious singing. It was at that church where she first really started performing, um, where she was the main attraction. There's a great story that has her being put when she's six years old on the top of the piano, um, holding a guitar, being put there so that she could be seen by the congregation and playing and singing and charming everyone with her talent and her precociousness. Shout, sister, shout. 
And when we come back, more on the life of Sister Rosetta Tharp, the godmother of rock and roll who influenced everyone from Elvis Presley to Johnny Cash and Chuck Berry. American stories you're listening to Elvis Presley some people think he was the king of rock and roll but Elvis Presley said that the real queen of rock and roll the godmother of rock and roll was sister Rosetta Tharp and we're listening to her story right now Jesse's doing a great job as always on these music stories I would urge you if you get a moment put in the words sister Rosetta Tharp and didn't it rain on a YouTube search and you will see something extraordinary and everything we're talking about you're going to see the way she held that Gibson SG, a white Gibson SG, as she comes off a carriage in Manchester by a train station in a white mink coat, gets in front of a small uh, ensemble. There are a bunch of white British kids waiting for this African-American lady in a white mink coat holding a white Gibson SG, doing the duck walk, all the moves that you'd see from Chuck Berry and Keith Richards. She created so many of them. But let's now return to the story of Sister Rosetta Tharp. I'm so glad somehow I've got salvation now. It keeps the spirit moving in my soul. Here's Anthony Halebutt, Grammy Award winning record producer, talking about Sister Rosetta Tharp's early performances before her teenage years. There's something within me that just holding the rain. She told me that when she was a girl, not even 10, she was immediately seen as an all-purpose musician. She'd go to a revival and she'd play her guitar. And if the people would get happy afterward and shout, she would drop the guitar and run to the piano and accompany them with her piano chords. And then she might get up and cut a couple of dance steps herself. She was a phenomenal showwoman. On life battlefield. Throughout her teenage years, Sister Rosetta Tharp was taken by her mother from city to city to perform in churches, tabernacles, and revival meetings, winning the hearts of thousands with her demure looks, angelic voice, and unique guitar style. She soon became a nationwide celebrity within the church, and this Philadelphia church is one of the first she performed in back in the 1930s, Church of God in Christ. Here's church parishioner Helen Henderson remembering Sister Rosetta Tharp. When I saw Rosetta, I was, a, I was about maybe 10 years old. Oh, she had, she had the most beautiful voice and the way she could speak to you. It made you feel different. You knew something was going on, even if you didn't understand really what it was. 
And that's the way it was with me because I was a child. And here's the pastor of that church, Robert Hargrove. Many of the hymns were expression of suffering and wanting to survive, many of them. And when she came and they saw the expression of her, the freedom that she expressed in her singing and dancing, it woke up the congregation. It focused them on something that was on the inside that they never gave expression to. Rosetta would start looking up. She didn't look at anybody. She looked up as if she saw God. And as if God was in her and she was communing with him rather than with a human being. When Rosetta Tharp was 19 years old in 1934, her mother married her off to a preacher, the Reverend Tommy Tharp. For the next four years, she and Tommy worked for the church. Her job was to draw the crowds while he preached from the pulpit. But in spite of her mother's good intentions, the marriage was not working out. Here's Rosetta Tharp's best friend, Roxy Moore, remembering her old friend while sitting behind the keys at the piano. Look up! Look up and see your maker before Gabriel. I met Sister Rosetta in the summer of 1937. She seemed a little bit glad that she was married, but she didn't seem to be very happy. And that's the reason I took to her. Because, you know, I wanted to just make her happy, make her feel as special as she really was. But I didn't have any idea that she and Tommy wouldn't make it. Ira Tucker, longtime friend of Sister Rosetta Tharp and lead singer for the Dixie Hummingbirds, remembers Rosetta's first husband a little differently. He was a tyrant. Um, from what my parents used to say and talk about, uh, he seemed to... Um, come out of the real, real sub-old school and believed in the kind of almost caveman-like attitude towards women. She was just a meal ticket. She was a performer, and he used her to bring people to his churches, and he would put her up to sing. And after a few years, she had enough, and she said, you know what, I'm going to leave all of it. And she made that big jump. Rosetta then left her husband and took her mother to New York. In a city full of nightclubs, Rosetta was soon noticed and offered a spot at the prestigious Cotton Club, singing to a white audience. Four, five, five. Four, five, but the song she was given by the men in charge made no mention of God. The lyrics were about pleasing her man. Here again is Roxy Moore and Ira Tucker. It was like a bomb had dropped on gospel music when she flipped. <laughs> it, it was like, what? You know, I can't believe she's, that's Sister Rosetta Tharp. She's not supposed to be singing that kind of music. Oh, she was criticized and ostracized. I mean, the church people just, you know, just thought that she had just gone way off. Oh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm right. I'm right or wrong, I'm gonna 
actually, it was hurtful to a lot of people because they felt as though they had lost something. They had something and it was great, but now it's gone. And they, they viewed it almost like a death. You know, Rosetta is, she's gone. She went over. She's in like another world. Having discovered that she loved God and nightclubs, Rosetta decided to sing gospel in church and join the secular world of show business at the same time. The offers began to pour in. She was wanted by all of the big bands of the day, and in October of 1938, she signed a contract with Decca Records. Sister Tharp was also beginning to stir controversy. Here's record producer Anthony Halebutt on what was happening at the time. Her first hit was a song called Rock Me. And the, the lyric is, Jesus hear me praying. She sang, won't you hear me praying? So when, when she came to the chorus, when she sang, rock me and growled rock, it sounded really to many people like uh, an invitation and not to the altar. And here's biographer Gail Wald talking about this part of Sister Rosetta's life. Recording the song in that particular way marked her as someone who was having the nerve to reinterpret a spiritual song for a secular audience. I think there was also a piece of her that was just rebellious. She does some very risque material with Lucky Millinder, most notably a song called Tall Skinny Papa, which was a big hit for Millinder's band, and she was the lead singer on that. And she sings, I want a tall skinny papa. There's no way of <laughs> misinterpreting I want a tall skinny papa for anything that has to do with um, spirituality. Roxy Moore also remembers that song all too well. The next thing I heard was this recording out a Rosetta with the tall skinny papa. So I said, it can't be Rosetta. So I went and bought the record. When after I listened to it, I said, oh my goodness, sister's out there singing that stuff. So when I, I saw her, I said, sister, I heard you tell Lucky Miller that you weren't going to sing that stuff. She said, when I saw that contract, he had a clause in there that I had to sing whatever he gave me to sing, she said, and I didn't know it. And I had a seven-year contract with him. She said, and I had to do it. I have a question to ask you. Want you to tell me if you can. I want somebody to tell me just what is the soul of man. Following the controversy with Tall Skinny Papa, Rosetta resolved to stick with the songs she knew best, gospel songs. Her loyal followers back in the church got over the shock and stayed with her while she gained new fans that loved her music. This wasn't easy to pull off, but somehow, she did it. By the age of 25, Sister Rosetta Tharp was rated among the finest popular musicians of the day. In less than five years, she had established herself in a male-dominated industry, singing the songs she chose to sing in her own distinctive way. She was now rich, famous, and officially gospel music's first superstar. And when we come back, more on the life of Sister Rosetta Tharp. Up above my head. I see trouble in the air. I see trouble in the air. Up above my head. Up above my head. I see trouble in the air. 
This is Our American Stories, and now our final segment on the life of Sister Rosetta Tharp. In a highly segregated society, black and white musicians performing together back then was considered highly taboo. However, Sister Rosetta Tharp was more than happy to defy convention. All we hear church people say, they are in this holy way. There are strange things happening every day. Gordon Stoker, from a band called the Jordanaires, remembers one such act of defiance. She was more or less a pioneer in asking us to even perform with her. She called us her four little white babies. And I thought it was so cute that, you know, that she referred to us as that, as, as that way. I thought that was just something I'll never forget. And we just loved to sing with her because when she started snapping her finger, man, and started singing on a tune, you couldn't help but sing. I know the first time we worked with her, they, they booked us. We went, to the, we went to the stage door, and some man came to the door, and, uh, and we, one of us said, well, we are, we are the Jordanaires. And he said, hmm, you, you are the Jordanaires? Well, he said, this is going to be a surprise to our audience. Sister Rosetta didn't tell him that we were white. <laughs> she booked us, but she didn't tell him we were white. And it, it, when we first went out on the stage, they didn't really know how to take us, but then we started singing, working on the building. But then on then we were in. By the age of 30, Rosetta had survived two brief and unhappy marriages. In 1951, Sister Rosetta Tharp invited 25,000 people to her next wedding to her manager, Russell Morrison, followed by a vocal performance at Griffith Stadium in Washington, D.C. This was a massive publicity stunt. They would sell tickets to her fans and the recording rights to Decca Records. Here's biographer Gail Wald. So she records uh, her wedding ceremony and a concert that follows it in 1951. 25,000 people come out and pay admission prices to attend her wedding. They bring wedding gifts for her. They bring crystal. They bring um, dishes for her. Someone even buys her a television set. It's a total showbiz move. And at the same time, it's a, it's a wedding ceremony. Um, conducted by a minister, a real wedding ceremony. Despite criticism from her friends for marrying her own manager, Sister Rosetta Tharp remained married to Russell for the next 22 years. Meanwhile, back in the Mississippi Delta region, young white musicians were just beginning to discover the raw energy and complex rhythms of African-American gospel. George Klein, a friend of Elvis Presley's, describes the scene. There was a hip thing happening in Memphis at that time. There was a little church... And it was cool. It was a cool thing to do on Sunday nights only. You would go there, and there would be Elvis and some of the other guys from the area. And it was unusual because back in those days, white people had to sit in the back and it was roped off. And we would sit back there, and we would watch these black spiritual singers sing on Sunday night. The thing that gospel spiritual music brought to popular music was feeling. Gospel spiritual music put the guts and the feeling and the real soul into it. And uh, people like Elvis and Johnny Cash and Jerry Lee Lewis and Carl Perkins and those guys, Buddy Holly, if you will, they saw that. 
and they adapted to that, and that's really was the essence of rock and roll. Thinking about it, Sister Rosetta Tharp, she had this great feeling, and that's what Elvis was looking for, feeling, because that's what was that's where it all came from. By the early 60s, Sister Rosetta Tharp's influence was continuing to spread as yet another generation fell under her spell. Here's a recording of the one and only Bob Dylan talking about Sister Rosetta Tharp on the radio. Sister Rosetta Tharp was anything but ordinary and plain. She was a big, good-looking woman and divine, not to mention sublime and splendid. She was a powerful force of nature, a guitar-playing, singing evangelist. It's a clean train. Everybody ride it, if you can. You know, she traveled to England with Muddy Waters and a whole bunch of other blues performers in the early 60s. And I'm sure there are a lot of young English guys who picked up an electric guitar after getting a look at her. In the summer of 1964, Sister Rosetta Tharp was booked to perform in a British gospel television music special. The musicians were all American, the audience, English students. The venue, an old railway station just outside Manchester, England. Joe Boyd, the tour manager of the 1964 folk, blues, and gospel caravan, remembers that performance. The Manchester gig was a curiosity in the middle of the tour for us. It was kind of bizarre, but you know, we were all new to England and we were aware of all this interest in blues and gospel. We all thought it was strange, the setup with the audience on one platform and the musicians on the other. And she rose to the occasion. She loved the drama of the situation and sort of trying to bridge that gap between the platforms and sell the whole thing across the, the track to the audience. By now, Sister Rosetta Tharp was 49 years old and she had been touring on the road for 40 of those years. But even in cold, wet, windy England, the magic was still there. As she arrived on a horse-drawn carriage, walked to the stage, strapped on a white Gibson SG, and began to sing, Didn't It Rain? Didn't it rain, children? Rain, oh, yes. Didn't it? Yes, didn't it? You know it did, didn't it? Oh, oh, yes, how it rained. While Rosetta was away in Europe, her mother was becoming increasingly frail. In 1968, Katie Bell died. For 53 years, she had stuck close to her daughter, through good times and bad, and the one constant figure reminding Rosetta of her faith in God. The loss took a heavy, heavy toll on Rosetta. She became increasingly depressed, and to make matters worse, she was diagnosed with diabetes. There is a divine power. I believe it. I don't know about you, but I got to believe it, because I was raised that way. I sing this song. Made in 1970 in Denmark, this is the last known recording of Sister Rosetta Tharp performing. Just Lord, take my hand, lead me on, and let me stand. I'm tired, you know, I work so hard. And I'm weak. 
Rosetta's friend, Roxy Moore, noticed a black spot on Rosetta's foot one day and told her to have it checked out by a doctor. Roxy Moore and Ira Tucker described what happened next. She wouldn't listen to anybody. So the next thing, foot started turning black. Then she did have to go to the doctor. Then they found out they had to cut a leg off. Just the same. Sometimes she would call me and say, Sister, please come. Please come to see me. And I would say, all right, I'm coming. But the last few months I didn't go because, you know, Russell was acting like he didn't want nobody taking over from him. When I went over to see her and said she was in the bed and she was, and she, she would say, where's Russell? I said, downstairs. And she would say, He's asking you about shows, right? And I said, no, he didn't say anything. He said, yes, he is. He, he wants to know if I'm going back. She said, and I'm going back. But I'm not going to tell anybody when I'm coming back. But I am coming back. But she never did. On October 9th, 1973, the eve of a scheduled recording session, Sister Rosetta Tharp passed away in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, as a result of a stroke. She was buried in Northwood Cemetery in Philadelphia. In 2008, some 35 years after Rosetta's death, the governor of Pennsylvania declared that the 11th of January will be known as Sister Rosetta Tharp Day. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Didn't it rain, children? And great job as always, Jesse. This is Our American Stories. Didn't it? Yes, didn't it? You know it did, didn't it? Oh, oh, yes, how it rained. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to your stories. Send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we'll produce them up and put them on the airwaves. Some of our very best pieces have come from you. The American people have, well, you all have great stories to tell and beautiful voices from all over this great country. It's been multiple decades since a nine-year-old kid shared his Coca-Cola with Pittsburgh Steelers star Mean Joe Green in one of the most famous commercials in American history. Most of us have seen that commercial many times, but the story behind the ad is just as great. Here's Greg Hengler. The man known as Mean Joe Green was one of the most feared defenders in NFL history. In 13 seasons as defensive tackle with the Pittsburgh Steelers, the 6'4", 275-pound Joe Green was a 10-time Pro Bowler and a 2-time Defensive Player of the Year. He became an NFL icon and a first ballot Hall of Famer. And then there's that name. Here's teammates Franco Harris and Andy Russell. Is there a better name than Mean Joe Green? I mean, that name just flows. And I ask kids about that, and I say, Mean? And they say, Joe Green. He asked me one time, he said, Andy, why do they call me Mean? And I said, 
because you're mean. <laughs> Here's Steelers chairman, Dan Rooney. We're playing in Philadelphia, and Philadelphia has the ball. And if they can make a first time, the game's over. They made it. They made the first time. And he went up, took the football, and threw it in the stands. And I said to my father, this guy's special. If he's that intense, if he's going to do something like that, we got a guy that we want. Some people ask that question, what does Joe really mean? Yeah, that was the perfect name for him. He hated to lose. That was part of his demeanor. He's here to win. He's here to beat that guy across from him. And he's not going to be nice about it. But inside the man who was the centerpiece of the steel curtain defense that led the Pittsburgh Steelers to four Super Bowl championships in six years was something unseen by the public eye. Here's Joe Green giving us a peek. When I was a senior in high school, my class voted me to be class president. And I declined. I think about that a lot. And it was basically because I was shy and didn't want to have to talk in front of the class or the student body. (laughs) But in 1979, Green's rugged public persona in life changed dramatically after being selected for a television commercial by Madison Avenue creative wizard Penny Hockey. We were asked to do an exploratory, that is to take the Coca-Cola brand and see where else it could go in its communications. The guys were sitting there saying, okay, well, who could we get? Well, we could get Lynn Swan, Terry Bradshaw, Franco Harris, Mean Joe Green. And I said, wait, there's a guy called Mean Joe Green? Is he mean? And they said, yeah. And I said, well, that's perfect. We want the most intimidating human being we can find. And boy, did we get it. We wrote about 10 different storylines, and the very first one that we came up with was, let's take kind of a pathetic little kid who's just awestruck over some kind of superstar football hero. Uh, The kid has nothing to offer except he has the Coca-Cola. He gives the superstar the Coca-Cola, the superstar drinks it, shazam, he's a changed person. In the commercial, Mean Joe would have a memorable encounter with a trembling nine-year-old named Tommy Okan. My mom and my dad were both in television. As to our future weather, well, we expect the rain to... My mom was on-air talent. My dad was a director and a producer. I had started doing commercials probably when I was around five or so. So by the time we did the co-commercial, I had probably done about 30 or 40 commercials up to that point. Let's go. Keep it going. I think you fumbled. On <laughs> the first day when we shot the commercial, there was a lot of downtime because they were doing a lot of work to the set. And uh, because of that, there wasn't a lot to do. So, of course, I had brought a football and went over to Joe and asked if he'd throw a football around. And he said, sure. He developed a sweet little relationship with Tommy and made Tommy much more comfortable. Okay. Now, giving the line, Joe. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, 
They were trying to get him to drink the whole Coke. And they had him maybe do that a couple of times and just said they were gonna, the guy was going to blow up after a while. He went through an awful lot of soda. And you know the, the legend, of course, that he drank 18 16-ounce bottles, equivalent to two and a quarter gallons. <laughs> Needless to say, when I started to shoot, first thing out of my mouth was a big burp. Hey, kid. All right, cut. <laughs> Talk about absolutely perfect timing. Super Bowl programs. Super Bowl souvenirs. Super Bowl pennants. Super the commercial Bowl. ran on the Super Bowl, and then they won. And the rest is history. What could be better? Mr. Green? Mr. Green? Yeah. Want my Coke? It's okay. You can have it. Okay. A coke and a smile makes me feel good. Makes me feel nice. See around. That's the way it should be. I like to see. Hey, kid. The whole world is smiling with me. Coca Cola has life. Have a coke and drink. Thanks, Mean Joe. Smile. Joe Green was probably the first black male that was cast in an, for a national brand. It was the fact that he was black and the little boy was white. It was a shock at that time, and people experienced it and really resonated to it. I don't know where that jersey went. I don't know if Joe took it back or who got it. I do know that that Christmas I got a package, and uh, it was a signed... Mean Joe Green jersey that I uh, still have to this day. But Tommy was not the only child whose life would be positively influenced by Joe Green. Here's Joe's wife, Agnes. I think uh, it changed our lives a lot. It changed Joe's personality a lot. Because so many kids were looking up to him, he decided he really wanted to be a role model for the kids. appeared with the Muppets and probably Elmo and was on children's TV shows. Well, you know, I used to be afraid of my own shadow. And then everybody told me that was silly. What are you afraid of? Well, lots of things. Like the whole offensive line of the Rams jumping on you. Yeah? We'd be walking around and little old ladies that I know didn't know anything about football would come up to Joe and talk to him. Listen, you're not a mean guy. He's just a big old teddy bear. Doing the Coca-Cola spot did change the image. I enjoyed it. I liked it. It made me uh, more approachable. To this day, I'm still rather amazed. I mean, it's the commercial that will not die. Although he was known to the world as Mean Joe, he is known to his grandkids as Papa Joe. When we went to uh, North Texas and you saw me interacting with the people and you were surprised. A little bit. Why? <laughs> um, I guess just because we know you as grandpa and then all these people are trying to talk to you and coming yeah. up to you. So okay. it's a little new. Yeah, these two, they had the same reaction. You didn't know. Like, whoa. 
The father of three and grandfather of seven credits the Coke ad with keeping him in the spotlight since his retirement in 1981. My public life, my football life, has been kept alive by the commercial. I think few people might know me as Mean Joe, but a lot of them know me as the Coca-Cola guy. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, Greg. The commercial that won't die. And it's so interesting that Mean Joe Green became, for so many young people, Sweet Joe Green, always to his kids and grandkids, Papa Joe. And what a terrific story about life. And in the end, the civilizing effect of kids on adults. Mean Joe Green's story, the Coca-Cola commercial story that the world fell in love with, here on Our American Stories. And to get all of our work, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, sign up for our free newsletter, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. You'll get our five best stories each week. Again, Mean Joe Green's story here on Our American Stories.